Let's stand up together. I want to uh, I want to read the first chapter of Revelation. See, some churches every every time they stand up when they read the Bible, and um, we don't typically do that, but we're going to do it tonight. The book of Revelation uh, is a little intimidating, um, mostly because it's it's filled with imagery, and we're going to talk about that a little bit and talk about like why. Uh, why it seems weird at times, and what do we do with that, and those kinds of things. But the first three chapters um, are different than than the rest of the book. It just has kind of a uniqueness to it. And we're going to spend the next nine Sundays kind of going through this very slowly. And so I just want to read the whole first chapter together. That kind of sets the sets the stage a little bit. Um, so if you can, you want to follow along, we'll have it on the screens. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's, let me let me read it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud here you go, the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. So we both win. Um, Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. This is a great couple of verses. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the, shining, was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are read and those that are to take sorry, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And these are the very words of God. You'll have a seat. So the author here is John. John the uh, was a part of Jesus's uh, inner circle uh, with Peter and James. He uh, was also called the the beloved disciple, the one that Jesus loved. And so, on while Jesus was on Earth, uh, of all the the humans that Jesus was close with, John was the the closest. Um, he served as an apostle. He wrote the Gospel of John, First, uh, Second, Third John, right? Revelation. So that's who that's who we're talking about. This is written in the mid '90s. Okay, not our mid '90s. The original mid '90s, uh, probably '95, '96. Uh, some of our heydays, uh, I would say. Um, so the mid '90s. So so Jesus. Um, his life and ministry and all that went down for the first 30 or so years. Uh, 33 or so is when they you know, attribute the, his death and resurrection and ascension. And then Pentecost happened after that. So the church was born in, say, 30, 33, 34. Now we're in 94, 95. So we're talking a 60, year, uh, 60 years of the church growing and expanding and being persecuted and uh, but people coming to know exactly who Jesus is as the Messiah. Um, John uh, wound up in Ephesus and uh, when he says, so look at, look at verse 9 again, um, I John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What that means you had this island that was about 40 miles off the coast and that's where they would send uh, criminals and prisoners. And so he got in trouble uh, because for preaching or teaching or something related to uh, ministry, as he says there. And so he's on this island, and he is probably around 80 years old, something like that. So uh, the, in the span of his life, he has, he's lived at, for what a Christian must be one of the most exciting time periods ever. To be a teenager and have Jesus come and call him to come after him and to follow Christ and to watch all that, to, to witness the crucifixion, to witness the resurrection, to witness the birth of the church, uh, to be a part of uh, planting churches and making disciples and preaching and teaching and just the, the expansion of the, ch- of the church all, all around that part of the world and beyond. Um, and so here he is, he's getting to be a, an older man, and he's in prison, and he has a vision so the book of Revelation is exactly that. It's something that has been revealed. And as you see, Jesus says in verse 11, write what you see in a book. So that's what he does. He writes, he writes down what he's seeing. So a lot of the imagery that's being used, John is he's doing the best that he can 
to describe the indescribable, you know. And so when he says that, you know, that when he describes something, I won't even use an example because we'll get to him in a second. It may not be that literally. It may just be him trying to find the closest thing he can wrap his mind around. Or it may be exactly that. It may be exactly that. We don't we don't really know. And so for tonight, we're going to we're going to go with a literal understanding of what he's seeing, even if it's kind of strange and kind of different. Um, that's what's going on. Mid-90s, John, the beloved disciple, is on an island, and Jesus gives him this revelation, allows him to see these things, and he writes them all down. Um, and you see, he says, right what you see in a book, it's verse 11, send it to the seven churches. So chapters 2 and 3 are these messages to these specific churches in these seven different cities. So starting on the 15th, we're going we're gonna to take... Uh, seven weeks and go through each one of these letters to see what Jesus has to say. So tonight and next week, we're kind of laying a foundation, pulling out of chapter one some very important things that are going to help us understand what those seven messages mean um, and really just try to take those into the depths of our understanding to see why. Why do we have this all these years later? Why is it so important? Um, and so something I want us to think about tonight is... Uh, is considering the source when it comes to the letters, the messages that are going to the churches. To think about exactly who is giving this input and these evaluations and correction and whatever in regard to the church. Um, We have these letters in the New Testament, you know, and so Paul is writing letters to churches and Peter, you know, the same thing. and, And those carry a certain amount of weight, and they should, um, but these are different. Like these, in your Bible, you may notice that all of chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's all written in red, just like the Gospels. Like this is Jesus talking. And so really for us to understand the, the weight and the significance of what he's saying to these churches, we really have to be very grounded in considering the source. And we do this a lot. You know, we, when someone says something, who says it carries a lot of weight with us, you know. So a lot of times what is being said is really, it's really about who's saying it as far as like the role that it plays within our lives. I'm going to put this quote up uh, that Ashley typed up for us. Um, and it's just, it's just a really great quote. Um, as a Christian, I have no duty to allow myself to be cheated. But I have the duty to be a fighter for truth Injustice. So, as a Christian, I have no duty to allow myself to be cheated, but I have the duty to be a fighter for truth and justice. All right? Probably like, yeah, okay, cool. So, who said that really determines how, how much weight that quote carries in our hearts and our minds, right? So, if you were to come across that quote and you were to see it like C.S. Lewis said that, right? Some of you would get that tattooed immediately, Right? I mean, there are people who, just, they lose their minds over C.S. Lewis. Even if the stuff he's saying is kind of weird, it doesn't matter. C.S. Lewis said it. It must be right. You know, it must be amazing that, that because of, of his writings and who he is and what we know about him and, and what, a, what a thought-provoking figure he's been in literature and in Christian thought and just the, the weight of that, for him to say this, would probably, we would probably all embrace it very much, you know. Now, if I were to throw out that quote and I were to say, you know who said this? Dennis Rodman. The quote changes a little bit, 
right? And I don't mean that in a judgmental way against Dennis Rodman. I'm just saying, Dennis Rodman, C.S. Lewis, right? The quote kind of naturally, it naturally changes. Maybe it carries, maybe it's wrong to say more weight or less weight, but a different kind of weight if C.S. Lewis said it versus Dennis Rodman said it. Um, or another one, if I were to show you this quote and attribute it to Adolf Hitler, then oh, it takes an even another weird turn, right? So if C.S. Lewis said it, it kind of, you kind of let it play a certain role in your mind, and if Dennis Rodman said it, you play a different role. And if Hitler said it, it plays a different role. And actually, Hitler's the one who said it. Like, he's the, the real person. So please don't get this tattooed on you, you know. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, that wouldn't be good. Because Hitler's the one that said it, I mean, it's still a good thought, right? But, man, the source really, really plays a role with us. That when, when someone like Hitler makes a statement like this, I don't know, it kind of affects us kind of weirdly. So Jesus is going to say some things to these churches that are really, really difficult. I mean, there are some churches that he's going to speak into, and he's going to say, I don't have a good thing to say about you. And others, he's going to say, I only have good things to say about you. And some, he's going to say, I got some good and some bad. And some, he says, if you keep this up, you're not going to be a church anymore. So considering the source is incredibly important as we move forward over the course of the summer that we, rem- that we remember who's saying these things. So, uh, look at look at verse 12. In verse 12, there begins this description of John's process of considering the source. He hears someone behind him with a voice like a trumpet that says, write down the things you're seeing and send them to the churches. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Then he begins to describe some things. And All I'm going to do really is I just want to walk through some of these descriptions and maybe maybe offer a little bit of uh, insight that has come just through studying uh, what scholars and stuff have written about it to maybe help us understand the imagery and and see why it's there. Because at first glance, you're like, man, that's just weird. It just sounds weird. It can't really mean anything, but it kind of does. So I'm just going to go through these, and maybe you want to jot some notes down. That's fine. But in John, considering the source, uh, so verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now we know from verse 20 that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. So you have uh, you know, these lampstands, or maybe you want to think of them as like uh, stands that are holding torches, you know, or candle, like candlesticks, or however you want to think of it. That when he sees them, that's what he sees. Seven of these lampstands that are just holding up a light. That's what a lampstand does, right? Um, holding up these lights, and that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now that, at first, you know, okay, whatever, that's going to be incredibly significant as we go forward. The lampstand idea representing the churches. So he sees the seven lampstands, verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. In the midst of the lampstands. Now let's, 
let's, let's, be, let's really go with the imagery here. You see these lampstands representing the churches, and where, does, where is Jesus standing? He's in the midst of them. He's not far away. He's not hidden, pulled up his chair to the edge of heaven, looking down upon them. He's in the midst of the lampstands. Jesus is in the midst of his people, of his churches. One of the things about this prophecy is that he, there, there isn't a seal that's put on it. It's not exclusive only to this time. It goes forward. And so these messages to the churches are not only for each of those individual churches, and that's it. It actually, the messages go to all seven, and it goes beyond even, even to us today. And so the way this kind of literature works means that we, we can grab onto these things and figure out what, is this, what does he want to say to us? What does he want to say to the ring? What does he want to say to me in light of this? Jesus is among the churches in the midst of us. Uh, he's not shepherding us from far away. He's closer than we imagine. And so, um, verse 13, In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man... All right, Son of Man is, uh, is used uh, all throughout the, the Gospels to talk about Jesus. It actually goes back to Daniel chapter 7, um, talking about the, the, the Son of Man who would receive from the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, who he would receive the, the, the kingdoms and the power and the authority and the glory. Um, and so Son of Man is found all throughout the Scriptures. And here's John using it again. And really what we need to understand is Son of Man... Like the Son of Man, that's Jesus. But also, he's seeing Jesus as a, as a man. That upon his uh, ascension to heaven, Jesus didn't stop being a man. That Jesus will be a man forever. Like that's who he is to us. So he sees Jesus, the man, standing in front of him, standing in the midst of, of the lampstands. And it says he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. All right, so a long robe. We know that uh, like the, the train of his robe filling the heavens, that there's just this length to it. And that, uh, that imagery is used uh, in the Bible to, to point to accomplishment and victory and authority and power and those kind of things. So the long robe uh, is, is significant. And... The sash around his chest, like it's not, not like a like beauty pageant, you know, Nazareth, you know, sash or whatever. Uh, it's a, it's not in my notes. Um, it's, he's, he's bound in gold. And if he were, if we were wearing that robe and the sash or the, it's like a belt, like a uh, whatever, um, if, if it were around his waist, then John would be looking at a priest. That's how a priest would dress. And uh, that was a known thing. And so when priests were performing priestly duties, they would wear their robe. And the longer they had served and the more esteem they had and the more faithfulness uh, you know, that encompassed their life, the longer the robe would be. Um, but if it was around their waist, he'd be a priest. The fact that it says around his chest means that he is dressed like a judge. That's what the judges would wear. So our judges wear black robes, right? And at one point, you know, the powdered wig thing or whatever. Well, in their day, they wore a long robe with a gold sash tied around their chest. It was higher. So he's looking at Jesus. Jesus is not 
in a priestly function. He is in a judicial function. So he's there to, um, to play that role. He's already been the priest. He's been the prophet. He's been the king. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is there as a judge. He's there to make rulings and decisions, and he's there to be the final uh, authority and word on things. So John sees Jesus standing among the lampstands, among the churches, among the people of God, dressed like a judge. So already, I hope it's taken on some more significance. You're like, oh, okay. Got it. So then, verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. In the Bible, this, uh, this points to wisdom. This points to dignity, kind of divine wisdom that, uh, that only Jesus brings to the table. So when Jesus is, when he's weighing in on how these churches are doing, He's not shooting from the hip, you know, he's not just throwing a bunch of opinions out there or whatever. He's bringing this, this divine mind and understanding of how things work. So when considering the source on what he's going to say in those seven different letters, he's not just some guy. It's pointing to the wisdom that he brings and the authority that he brings. It says, uh, his eyes were like a flame of fire. At first you're like, what in the world? His eyes were like a flame of fire. And I was doing some reading on that, and some of the different scholars in regard to not only languages, but culture, and especially apocalyptic literature like this, I said this is, you know, the, the eyes are, are about seeing, right? And so the fire, him being able to, to see, is really saying like he sees through all of our facades. You know, we're, we're kind of able to fool each other a little bit. Um, we're able to kind of maybe control perception and those kinds of things. And here's Jesus who comes in. He's got wisdom as seen in, in the imagery of his hair. And he sees through our acts a little bit. He's able to evaluate perfectly. He has this omniscience, this all-knowing understanding of what's going on. And so when he weighs in and he speaks to one of these churches and says, Hey, I got something to tell you. He's not, he's not fooled. He's not fooled by slick programming. He's not fooled by uh, just, I don't know, just really like impressive outward stuff. He's not... He's not fooled by um, our ability to uh, act like everything's okay or like we got it all together and that kind of stuff. He's like, no, I, I see through those things. Other people may not be able to, but me, I, I'm speaking as the one who, who's looking right into your heart and into your mind. Now that can be scary, or we can relax into it, you know. Because it's scary in the sense that we work really hard to, make, have, to control what people think about us. But maybe if we were just to, to like, 
like stop fighting that so much and just kind of relax a little bit. I'm like, well, if he knows me, then he knows me. All right, what now? We don't have to work. We don't have to, to try and like fool him or whatever. So he's going to be speaking to some of these churches and, and he's, going to, he's going to say some really difficult things and it's because he's, he knows what's really going on. And it'd be the same thing for us, you know. The same thing for us as individuals as well. To keep in mind that he weighs in on our lives and speaks into our lives and leads us and he, he sees right through, right to what's real. With love and compassion and firmness, right, and discipline and correction and those kind of things, but, but he knows what's really going on. So his eyes were like a flame of fire. In verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. All right, so what does that mean? Well, uh, when something has been refined, right, the impurities have been like burned out of it, heated out of it. Uh, it's, it's, there's a perfection that's there. And so really, if, if, you, if you kind of think about what he's looking at, there's... His hair is white, which is wisdom and purity and goodness, and then his feet have been purified. And so from head to toe, Jesus is holy, right, and perfect. And his feet have been purified. And so he's in the midst of the lampstands, and you don't need to turn to it, but in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, uh, he says that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. So as Jesus is in the midst and he's walking among us, he's walking in holiness and in purity. Then when we're considering the source, we're talking about the Holy One. There's no imperfection in him. There's no, uh, there's no, uh, let me tell you like this. So I was, a, I was a high school teacher, I was a band director, and one of the things that you do when you are, um, when you do that for a living, is that you, uh, you, you take your different kinds of, of bands and groups and stuff like that, and you go to these, these um, they call them festivals, um, and so you would just go and you would, you would work up like three songs, you would go in, you get them as good as you could possibly get them, and you go and there would be these three judges that would listen to your, listen to your band play, and they would evaluate you and that kind of stuff, and they would give you a rating. So one, one was the best you could get, one, two, three, four. Um, so you're always trying to get ones. That was the thing. Straight ones. That's what you want. Straight ones. And so you'd have the three judges, and then there's like a combined score type deal. And sounds like American Idol, but not quite. Um, and so uh, that was a regular thing. And so any of you who grew up in like band or choir, orchestra, anything like that, probably familiar with it. And um, so when I was teaching, uh, our, our, we had a, a jazz group, and so we went to New Orleans to this competition, and uh, got these three these three tunes together. Got them as good as good as we could get them, and they were they were cooking. They were doing pretty well. We go in and we play, and there's there's the three judges sitting out there. Two of them I'd never heard of. The third one, uh, his name is Bill Grimes, Doctor Bill Grimes. Uh, if you ever took if you went to LSU and took the history of jazz history of jazz class, uh, you probably had it. Uh, if you're an LSU student, and you you should take that class. Um, and so uh, he, he was the, at the time, he was the like a, a, assistant dean at LSU, but he taught all the jazz classes, did the jazz band. Um, I got to play for a semester, play bass in the jazz band for, with him for one semester and um, have kind of known him or been around him you know, for a long time or whatever. So you got these two judges I don't know, and you got this guy who I do know, and I know that he knows his stuff, 
Like he, uh, he just, he's, he knows what he's doing. He's an expert in this. Um, so we play, we get our, you know, our ratings or whatever afterwards. And the other two guys uh, had, had both given us a two. And Grimes gave us a one. And for me, I was like, I don't care what the other people say. You know, like Grimes gave us a one. That's, that's for real, you know. And his comments were, like, he was, he was just very affirming and just very, it was just, it was really, it was just cool for me as a, as a band director. Um, I couldn't really explain that to the students because they were like, whatever, you know, whatever, I'll mad because they got a two. But uh, I was like, no, but this guy, he really knows what he's talking about. So if he said a one, we really played a one. And they're like, we don't, we want the trophy. We don't care. So uh, that's, all, that, that, you know, whatever. So, so for him to listen to us play and um, he's talking into a little recorder thing. He's making all these, all these comments, and he's just very affirming, and he corrected some things and whatever. That was very meaningful to me. Uh, I felt like, like I did a good job with him, you know, whatever. Um, and then I started to wonder later on, I was like, what if he was just being nice, you know? What if he was like, oh, I know that guy. He played bass for me or whatever. I'll be, I'll, uh, you know, I'll grade him on a curve a little bit, and I'll just kind of, you know, you know like what if he was, what if it was not a true evaluation, you know? What if it was more personal, or what if it was whatever, or what if he just wanted me to like him, whatever, whatever that means. Uh, you know, like, what if, what if there was something else going on, another kind of motive, another kind of whatever in there, and it kind of made me second-guess it a little bit. Um, and I'm dealing with it, okay? Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, that was a long time ago. But the thing is, with, to bring that into this, that was a long story to get to a very short point, um, with Jesus, there isn't any sort of second-guessing that we have to do on our end to wonder, what, what's his agenda, you know? Like, what's he, why is he saying this? You know, to the churches where he is very affirming, you know, like, why is he like them so much, you know? What's, what's in it for him? And the churches where he's about to just drop the hammer, it's like, whoa, what, what's going on there, you know? There, there are no impure motives on Jesus's end when it comes to his leadership of his church. It's pure. From head to toe, there's holiness. We see it like literally in the imagery, in his hair and in his feet. So we know that his perspective is holy and good. And so when he leads your life, when he leads my life, we don't have to worry about that. But we're kind of built to worry about that, right? Just because we, we work with people, and people a lot of times, they, I don't know, they're, they're dumb. You know, they have weird motives, and they're, you end up getting messed over in the long run, and now you find out all this kind of stuff, whatever. But with Jesus, it's perfect. So if he's going to drop the hammer, it's done in holiness. And if he's going to encourage, it's done in holiness. And whatever way he chooses to lead us, it's perfect and good. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice like the roar of many waters. The roar of many waters. I've never been to Niagara Falls, but I bet if you're standing right next to it, it's kind of hard to hear anything else. The roar of many waters. That his voice drowns out everything else. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held the seven stars, which we know, it says the seven stars, the angels of the seven churches, which we'll get to that later. But he's, he's holding them. It shows strength, it shows possession. 
Whomever the stars represent, it's very personal to him. He's holding them. His right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That's the kind of sword that the Romans used to kill people. That's coming from his mouth. Now, throughout the Bible, sword and the scriptures are synonymous. That that is the instrument of judgment for him. Not necessarily the Bible exclusively, but by his words, his promises. Basically, he's, he has, he's going to do what he said he's going to do. The standards by which we will be judged that he gives us in the scriptures, that is what he will hold to. And by his word, he will carry out justice for us and to us. The last thing in 16, his face was like the, shining, or was like the sun shining in full strength. Talking about radiance and beauty and power and intensity. And so that's what, that's what John is seeing in front of him. A man dressed like a judge standing among the churches. Wisdom and strength and holiness from head to toe. Judging and evaluating and assessing by his words. Pure in his motives, able to see through the facades his voice drowning out everything else. So verse 17, of course, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Of course he did. You want to see that, that picture of strength when, you, when we see it in clarity. That's kind of all we can do is just kind of, woof, you know. But he laid his right hand on me. This is beautiful. And fear not, I'm the first, the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Say, I have the keys. I have the authority. The persecution that has come, that won't, that won't win. I have authority over that. The garbage that we deal with in our lives, Jesus has the keys to those things. He has the authority. He has the power. Yeah, we deal with some difficult things in our lives. Yeah, none of, none of them go outside the bounds of his power and his goodness. His desire to use those things to bring himself glory, to shape us, to grow us. And you know, it doesn't make a lick of sense a lot of times. That's why I think even like this intense imagery, you're like, I don't even understand it. And I think Jesus is like, yeah, exactly. A lot of things you don't understand. Here's, here's what you do need to know. Look at verse 17. Don't be afraid. Don't forget who I am. First, last, alive, holder of the keys. Now start writing. <laughs> John's like, oh, okay, all right. Don't forget who I am. That for Jesus to begin to weigh in and to speak these messages to these churches, they, need, they had to consider the source. And when you consider who he is, and he looks at you and says, we need to work on some things, I, we, we naturally we submit to that because we know it's done with love and power and goodness and grace. And when he looks at us and he says, I want to I affirm you on some stuff, we're not like, oh, shucks, you know, whatever. That could, we're like, no, bring it. Affirm. Correct, rebuke, whatever, whatever you need to do. It's when we, 
when we have him in full view, that we, we receive that. And see, next week is going to be a lot about the church, like our church specifically, and those churches. In the next several weeks, we're going to be, we're going to be drawing these, le- these messages from these churches and bring them into our church. But for tonight, I, w- I just want us, in these last few minutes together, as we sing a little bit, I want us to be a little bit self-centered, if we can. I want you to think of what this has to do with you and to consider the source for your own life. That this same Jesus wants to weigh in on your life. He wants to lead you. He wants to guide you. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to correct you. He wants to keep you from things that will bring you pain. He wants to lead you in healing. He wants to restore and mend and heal. He wants to, that's what he wants to do. This same Jesus. So when we consider the source... It should, we should be just wide open to that. We should want it. We should seek it. We should ask for it. We should beg him. Beg him for input. But a lot of times we don't, you know. Because sometimes maybe we're afraid of what he's going to say or whatever. And it's because we lose sight of who he is. So the beginning of a study of Revelation, especially these letters, I think needs to begin with keeping Jesus in full view and who he really is, and considering who, who is leading us in a personal sense and in a corporate sense. And so I don't know how that fits into your life. I, that's, that's between you and him. But if you've been resisting his leadership, if you've been shrugging it off a little bit, you know, if you've been seeking other kinds of input or whatever, if, if, if you have not been running to the feet of this Jesus, then I hope, hope, hope this ignites something in you. It's ignited things in me. Hope that it ignites something in our church to know that this same Jesus walks among us as a lampstand and wants to lead us as individuals and collectively. So we're going to sing a little bit and just respond to this. It seems like kind of a simple message, which is really like, okay, Jesus is awesome. All right, that's the, that's the sermon topic. Jesus is awesome. Uh, but man, sometimes that's just what we need. All right. So we're going to sing a little bit in response, and I want to pray for us. Would you stand with me? Maybe just uh, just think about that for a second. Think about this Jesus. Who's wanting to speak into your life and to guide you and correct you. and Maybe just ask him to help you desire and seek Seek out his input in your life more than you are now to ignite something. And we'll sing a little bit in just a second.